Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 707 with Amy Edmondson. Amy has been on the list of prospective guests for a while, so it is a thrill to have her here. You may have heard us mention psychological safety before. Well, Amy is the queen of the psychological safety research, so she has fantastic perspectives on how your team can thrive all the more effectively. So you'll learn, one, why the average non-toxic organization is still ineffective, two, the crucial belief that makes us all the more courageous, and three, how we can unknowingly make or break psychological safety. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or links to items we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP707. And here's Amy's story. Amy Edmondson is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. A chair established to support the study of human interactions that lead to the betterment of society. Edmondson has been recognized by the Bay Annual Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011, receiving the organization's Breakthrough Idea Award in 2019 and Talent Award in 2017. She studies teaming, psychological safety, and organizational learning. Her articles have been published in numerous academic and management outlets. Her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth offers a practical guide for organizations serious about success in the modern economy and has been translated into 11 languages. Her prior books, Teaming, How Organizations Learn, Innovate, and Compete in the Knowledge Economy, Teaming to Innovate, and Extreme Teaming, Explore Teamwork Dynamics in Organizational Environments. Prior to her academic career, Amy was Director of Research at Pecos River Learning Centers, where she worked on transformational change in large companies. Edmondson received her PhD in Organizational Behavior, AM in Psychology, and AV in Engineering and Design from Harvard University. Big thanks to Amy for sharing her wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Amy. Amy, thanks for joining us here on How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to be speaking with you. You've been on our list for years. <laughs> and so here we are. And so I'm excited to dig into all of your wisdom or as much as we can get within the time we have available on psychological safety. But first, I think we need to hear about you and competitive sailing. What's the story here? <laughs> How did that come up? I must have answered a question somewhere. Well, I was a competitive sailor as a child, not as much as a child can be, with my great friend, Beth Haffenreffer. We sailed and raced all summer and had a wonderful time. Then I sailed and raced in college. 
And then I took about 35 years off, but started up again maybe six years ago. And it's great fun. Beautiful. So now I'm curious, when it comes to competing, what is the nature of the event and and the competition? And is there a team? What's your style here? Yes. So I compete only in the summer in a small community in Maine where I've gone for many, many years. And I compete in a sonar with two teammates. And there are only nine boats in the fleet. So that's the limit to our competition. We race Wednesday nights and Saturday afternoons in July and August. All right. And are things going pretty well, competitively speaking? Well, as a matter of fact, we just won the season. Oh, well done. Yeah, thank you. It's teamwork. It's all about the teamwork and the psychological safety, of course. All right. All right. Well, yes, let's talk about psychological safety. And first of all, well, I guess whenever I hear your name, I think psychological safety and vice versa. (laughs) So maybe first and foremost, can you give us your official definition? What do we mean when we say psychological safety? Recently, I've been thinking the best way to say this is just a sense of permission for candor. And the reason I say permission is that I don't want to imply that psychological safety means it's easy to speak up about potentially challenging issues, disagreements, or crazy ideas, or questions, or mistakes, but that there's a belief that it's feasible, expected, desirable, that people won't think less well of you for it. So permission for candor. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's a, that's a great distinction because I've heard it said elsewhere a definition of psychological safety is the belief that you are able to say whatever is on your mind without fear of a negative reaction. And I thought, mm, I don't have that relationship with yeah. almost anybody. <laughs> right. At least without fear of being marginalized or penalized in some way. I mean, what We all are human and we will have negative reactions to disagreement or or certain kinds of bad news. I mean, that's just our emotions will kick in quite quickly. But if we're thoughtful and we're a good team and we're committed to doing the best we can, we will catch ourselves and say, don't shoot the messenger. And it's not just because you just said something unwelcome doesn't mean I should shun you or think less well of you. Oh, that's good. So not marginalized, not penalized, not shunned, not thought less well of. But naturally, someone might say something and you you think that they are mistaken and you maybe even feel underappreciated that they were to bring up such a thing, but you're not going to like punish them over that, even if you have a difficult interaction. Right. And I think that's easier to do if you have an honest appreciation of what you're up against, meaning that the nature of the work requires stumbles and falls along the way. If you're talking about doing something that's utterly routine and well understood and well known, then maybe your expectation should be of only perfect comments and only perfect performance. But if you're doing work like most of us are, where there's lots of potential for for wrong turns and screw-ups along the way to greatness, then that's just part and parcel of of what we're doing here. So it helps to have a clear-eyed sense of 
what we're up against and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. All right. And then tell us, you know, that sounds like a pleasant thing. Oh, yeah. Psychological safety. I'd like to have that with my (laughs) friends, uh, family, (laughs) colleagues, collaborators. But more than just a nice to have and pleasant vibe, psychological safety has huge implications for performance. Can you share with us a little bit about that relationship and and some of the most compelling uh, bits of, of data or stories? Sure. It's funny because the variable, the measure of psychological safety that I developed 20 years ago, it's been around in the research literature for a long time, but it's now been more widely used in, in company settings. And in other words, we have more and more data on some of the benefits of psychological safety. Probably the most visible, widely read study was the study done at Google called Project Aristotle. And that was about five years ago. And the study set out, it didn't set out to study psychological safety. It set out to try to figure out what are the key factors associated with differences in performance across teams, teams at Google. So they studied 180 teams. Turns out they tested about 250 different variables. And psychological safety emerged as the number one predictor of performance in teams. So the number one explainer of variance across teams. And I think it's a strong statement to say that surprised them, right? Because if if you're looking for something, it's easier to find it. If you're not looking for it, it's almost a more compelling discovery when it pops up as the factor that really helps explain these differences. So one of the things I love about that study, too, is that it shows very clearly that there were differences, differences in performance, differences in effectiveness across teams at Google. So it helps us see that this is something that varies across teams, even in the same corporate culture. And that's important because we then can be very clear about the fact that psychological safety isn't just mirroring the culture. Mm -hmm. It's climate, it's interpersonal climate. And even in a very strong or very interesting or healthy corporate culture, you can still have differences in interpersonal climate, differences in that just subtle, willingness to be candid, to speak up, or to not hold back. Sometimes I think it's easier to explain that the absence of psychological safety is basically a preference for, you know, I'll just wait and see, I'll hold back, and maybe things will clarify, and then maybe I'll speak up. But that's an awful lot of cognitive work. Mm -hmm. So putting that aside, so the Google study is a good study of the nice relationship between psychological safety and performance and many others. One of my favorite studies that I did, which was in a healthcare delivery setting, an intensive care unit setting, 23 North American hospitals, 23 intensive care units, we found statistically significant relationship between psychological safety and quality improvement, right? So the ability over time for teams to improve the quality of care which was ultimately associated with lower rates of morbidity and mortality. That's harm and death. So that's a pretty strong one where life and death are concerned. Yeah. There are many others, though. There are now really hundreds of studies that have relationships to things like performance, learning behavior, quality improvement, you name it. Okay. Well, that's a nice overview. Thank you. And could you now perhaps paint a picture of the cross? I know I'm sure it'll vary greatly, but hey, even relationship by relationship, but let alone team by team or workplace by workplace. But 
roughly speaking, what's the median average-ish <laughs> level of psychological safety in workplaces today in the U.S.? And I don't know if you want to give me a number or paint a picture for the feel or the vibe. Yeah, I'll paint a picture. What's the typical psychological safety story in a workplace these days? It's probably a fool's errand to try to say what's typical because there's so much variability, right? And, and even in the, during this difficult time of COVID, there's been extraordinary variability in terms of some places. I think the, the rallying together to do what people can to sort of make things work during these difficult times has created the stronger sense of a bond and, and more psychological safety where people realize, yeah, it's okay for me to, to say what I'm thinking and to get help when I need help. And that's acceptable now. But in other places, I think where people, especially in workplaces where people are being asked to do things they might not be comfortable doing, one could arguably say the psychological safety has gone down. I strongly believe that in most organizations, there's still variance across groups. And this is in part because psychological safety is a very local thing. This team might have it and that team doesn't. And that may mean this is really a middle manager thing or a team leader effect more than a, say, a CEO effect. That's very much been the case in in all of the data sets that I'm, I'm aware of. But still, I'm dodging your question, saying it depends. There's lots of variants. Some people have it better than others. And yet, there's no question in my mind that nowadays and even before the pandemic, it's not high enough. Right? So I'm, I think it's fair to say that very few workplaces have as much psychological safety as would be optimal in terms of helping people do their very best work and helping people team up effectively and solve problems. Fortunately, the average workplace, I will say, is not one that's incredibly toxic Mm -hmm. or incredibly fearful, where there's a complete focus on self-protection as opposed to on on the mission or on what our colleagues need from us and and, really a, a state of fear. I think that's that it's out there for sure, but it's not the dominant workplace. Okay. And then I would say there's very few where it's just extraordinarily high, where people are candid and aware of their fallibility, but ambitious about what they might do together. And they engage in in dissenting views and conflict and problem solving without fear of reprisal, right? That's the other end of the spectrum. In the middle is a whole range of places where, in fact, it's not toxic, right? It's not terrible, but... On average, there's still too much holding back. People are holding back their ideas, their perspectives, trying to look good in front of their colleagues, their managers, and it limits their ability to contribute. Okay. So the quote unquote average or typical, which is hard to do, it it looks like not just straight up abusive, hardcore toxicity and fear rampant, but plenty of people holding back in order to, to look good and, and concerned about speaking up and could be harmful or problematic to them. So I guess I'm curious if we think about making the leap from quote unquote average or, or typical that the picture that you, the suboptimal picture that most of us find ourselves into versus 
approaching best in class. Well, well, maybe could you give us a cool case study of, do we have a transformation there in terms of what was it like before and what was the vibe like after? And then how did that translate into some results? So one of the great turnaround stories in, uh, and I do write about this in some detail in the Fearless Organization, is Cynthia Carroll, CEO of Anglo-American, which is a mining company in, in South Africa. And when she became CEO, which is already a stunning thing because first woman CEO and so forth, she was appalled to discover the degree of not of worker accidents and even deaths. And so she decided to make that her mission, to profoundly transform the performance on this crucial dimension of workplace safety. And to do that, she realized pretty quickly that she needed people to be speaking up, speaking up about unsafe conditions, speaking up when they're being asked to do something that's unsafe or when they're, they're sort of aware of a hazard not easy to do because it's been decades, even generations of not being heard and not being listened to and feeling that you just go in there, you do your job and that's that. So it was a, it was a pretty stunning intervention. She got everybody in a stadium and, and got them talking uh, in a new way and, and was able to apply that into the workforce and, and turn this around and make a dramatic difference. Here's a very different context. The SEB, one of the largest Nordic banks, did, uh, I wouldn't call it as dramatic a turnaround because I don't think they weren't in real trouble, but senior leaders were aware that the, the financial services industry was changing, more fintech players, more innovation happening. And the executive who ran the risk group decided that they needed to create more psychological safety for speaking up about potential risks. Because when people just feel like, oh, maybe I'm wrong, I'm, and they hold back and they're not confident enough that their superiors want to listen to them, the bank is more vulnerable and to risks. And so uh, that was a, a very thoughtful turnaround of that unit. And then they, it started to spread to other business units uh, in the bank as well. So that was a fun one to write about. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Well, so, so that's the picture there. And I'd love it in terms of sort of the the practical how-to if folks are in organizations and, and they want to improve the, the psychological safety for themselves and, and others in their teams. What are some great starting points or, or, or key practices that make all the difference? A way to answer that question in terms of both a, a starting point and a practice that makes a difference is start with the work, right? Start with how the performance goals that you share what they look like, what they require, so that the we're not doing this just for the sake of doing it or because we're interested in culture change per se, but we articulate sort of why the work we do needs us to behave and show up in a different way. So articulating goals that matter, that are motivating, that are energizing, and then Having some discussion about why achieving those goals requires people to voice their ideas, to challenge each other, to be open about problems, open about failures is the next logical step. And then I think it's really important not to dictate how we're going to do this, but to invite people to suggest some things that they think might work, that might help them have an easier time offering their ideas or asking questions. And then start testing some of those suggestions and just 
keeping it in the context. I mean, it's not a let's. I'm, I'm advocating not for let's go offline and learn some things, but let's practice some new ways of talking and being while doing our work. Okay, that sounds good. So that's a nice thing to to kick it off and get folks engaged, rallied around that that goal, and it makes sense. It's not some extra thing, but it really has impact on on what we're trying to do here. That's cool. And then I'm I'm curious about just the basic ways in which we talk to and interact with each other. Like what are some do's and don'ts in terms of offering feedback, asking for input, responding to failure? And I think some of us might need a pretty dramatic reprogramming of just the way we talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And it's hard. I struggle with this question. It's not the first time I've I've thought about it, but I struggle because there's no easy answer, right? It's it's how do you do reprogramming? And I I talk a lot, I think a lot about framing and I, I talk about reframing. So the framing is something we do all the time as human beings, right? We think we're sort of under the illusion that we're seeing reality. We're not, right? We're seeing reality filtered through our own beliefs and background and experiences and biases and and all the rest. And sometimes our frames are really obsolete, right? They're, They're frames that we inherited from an earlier era, an era when the relationship between effort and results was more straightforward. You know, you tried really hard, you'd get the results because the formula was pretty clear. Follow the recipe, you'd get the results. And as an increasing portion of the work doesn't really conform to that simple frame, we have to explicitly and deliberately reframe, which is another way of saying reprogram. We have to help ourselves really appreciate that we're fallible human beings in a complex, uncertain, interconnected world. Those are conditions that will necessarily give rise to the unexpected and the undesired and also some now and then happier surprises. So that reprogramming, in a way, it helps us get over ourselves, right? We've got to shed the idea that we need to be perfect. We've got to shed the idea that we need to look good all the time. And I know, I mean, I I suspect most listeners don't think what they say. I'm not telling myself I need to be perfect or I need to look good all the time. But in subtle ways, we're acting as if that's the case. We're holding back too often. We're putting the threshold for when we should speak up higher than it needs to be. And so to do this reprogram, I think it's a lot of there's some having a cheerful recognition that you're a fallible human being in a fast-paced, uncertain, ambiguous world. And then, ooh, if that if I really appreciated that that is the case, how would I show up, right? Well, I'd ask a lot more questions, right? I'd be a lot more curious. So the reprogramming starts with that clear-eyed acceptance of reality and realizing that might be different how we, than how we tacitly think about reality, and then forcing ourselves to be curious, which then allows us to do what I think is the most important thing of all, which is to ask more questions, genuine questions, like you're doing. You're asking me questions, and then you are quietly listening to the answers. If only real life were like mm-hmm. this, not just podcast life. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. And so then that's a great frame for starters in terms of Well, boy, say it again. I'm a fallible human in a changing, 
That's so good. Let's hear it again. <laughs> okay. And I might not have said it the same way twice. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm a fallible human being living in an, a fast-changing, uncertain, interdependent world. Yeah. You know what? Tell you what, just sitting with that for me in this moment, <laughs> just bringing a sigh of relief, you know, <laughs> in terms of like, I can let go right. of a lot of pressure, stress, expectation that need not be there. Right. I'm the same way. I just, I talk about this, right? But do I practice it consistently? No. In fact, I have this to-do list that I started with this morning. It's utterly unrealistic. There's no way I could get, oh, I'll finish a chapter. I'll, you know, I'll have this wonderful time with you. I'll, it's crazy, right? But I do it every day as if, and then I feel bad about not getting through it. Yeah. That's great. And then if you really do internalize that conviction, it, it's like if someone, even if someone does disrespect you with regard to is like, really, Pete? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's on page four of the briefing document. <laughs> like, that was a really stupid question. And I'm appalled that you asked, right? When that, when that tone of voice and face like puts that out. So, which is where I think about this, the violations of psychological safety go left and right. You can feel better about that. It's like, okay, yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. I should have read the briefing document before making it. Right. That's true. That uh, is a mistake I made, but that doesn't mean I'm I'm bad or a loser or uh, worthless, a team member who doesn't belong here. It, it doesn't mean any of those things. It's just like, yeah, I made a mistake. We all do it. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Right. And I'm not a fan of making the same silly mistake multiple times in a row. We do have to learn, learn from and keep striving to do better. But I imagine most people feel that way as well. Mm -hmm. And so then I would love it if, if there are any particular words or phrases that you see and love in psychologically safe organizations versus see and really irk you in not so psychologically <laughs> safe organizations. Because I think there's just a, a lot of little subtle ways that psychological safety is built and destroyed. Like just for example, mm -hmm. one of mine is when someone says, obviously, yes, I really don't like that because it's like, oh, I didn't know that. I must be an idiot. That's one of my pet peeves. That's a beautiful example. And I think most people need not say the word obviously in most of their business communications, but that's just sort of my hobby horse. Absolutely. You tell me, Amy, what are some of yours? <laughs> no, that's a really good one. And because with compassion, it can be a habit, right? So it's a very counterproductive word to use in interpersonal communication for the reasons you just articulated. And I'm aware that I accidentally do use it sometimes mm. because my brain speaks that way to me and then I use it. So that's okay as long as we can sort of catch and correct and occasionally laugh at ourselves for doing that. And I sometimes will. I'll use a word like obviously and then I'll stop and say, oh, no. So if it were obvious, I wouldn't say it yeah. right or it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a nice way to say it anyway another one is to be honest uh-huh i mean crazy to say that right because it basically invalidates <laughs> so much of the prior conversation we might have so if i say to be honest it's like wait a minute was everything up until now not really honest <laughs> and uh, so these kinds of things can be well meaning but problematic it's such a good question that you just asked that I'm going to now commit to creating a list. Oh, 
please let us know and we'll, we'll link it in the show notes and, and share it again when the time comes. Perfect. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. I do love studying conversation and you know, studying the actual exchange of, of words and noting those problematic triggers that indicate any word that indicates, oh, you're supposed to have known that already, or your question isn't really welcome, or yeah, you name it. That's true. Well, yeah, those are good categories right there. Like your, your question isn't really welcome. We think that you're dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're dumb because you said that. I remember once I was working at a project for in retail and, and, and again, there's these little things. And so it was, it was a major department store. This is a consulting project. It was a major department store. Mm-hmm. And we were learning about size packs, which was a new concept to me mm-hmm. in terms of like, if you buy it from like a clothing designer, I don't even know if it still works this way, but like you, you, you could choose from size packs. So a size pack might have four extra larges, 10 larges, three mediums. That was really surprising to me. And I was like, wait a minute. So we're a huge department store client, right? And we got these clothing suppliers pre-limited yeah and we can't just tell them no we want exactly this many smallest mediums larges like really size packs like why do we do that and so and i remember like the <laughs> the partner on the case looked at me and he said are you serious <laughs> like like he was genuinely didn't know if i was yeah. if i was like trying to make a joke right and i really wasn't <laughs> right but when he said that i was like well apparently that was a phenomenally stupid thing to say and i still don't know why to this day i've like if you've got the market power shouldn't you know your suppliers give you what you want i don't know but maybe there's a logistical supply reason in trucks or packaging or something a listener will let us know well it's easier for them clearly but are you serious like as you said are you serious as a sarcastic statement which it may have been is problematic but if it were genuine i'm in favor right I just need to check. I'm not sure. Are you serious or are you? So anyway. Oh, I hear you. Yeah. It, the genuineness really matters. It was genuine. And, and then I yeah. think that's another layer to this psychological safety stuff. It's like you could be speaking perfectly safely and someone could still receive it negatively. Mm-hmm. So for example, that, that partner said, are you serious? And he really was genuine. He was like, mm-hmm. are you serious? Right. And I really was. But the fact that he said, he said, are you serious? Made me think, oh, apparently this is so obvious. I'm a moron. That's true. And then you back down. That's the conclusion I left to. But that's on me, right? I mean, he didn't demean me or or, or wasn't rude to me. That's on you. That's you withdrawing and feeling oh, just slightly less safe expressing your thoughts about this work-related matter. Yeah. Even though it it technically wasn't his fault. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you put that embarrassment on yourself. You said, oh, I, I guess this is something I'm supposed to know. And maybe I stepped out, I tiptoed out and it didn't work out well. So now I'm going to back into my shell. Yeah, that happened. And, and I guess I'm curious, given the, that human beings with our varied triggers and hot buttons and sensitivities, that can happen. Any, any pro tips for uh, dealing with that and trying to continue building psychological safety, given that reality? Yes. Interpersonal skills are are skills that we can continue to develop our whole lives. I mean, I, I don't think we will, we, anyone ever perfects them. So, and the interpersonal skill that I'm deeply interested in because of its relationship to mutual learning is that ability to have an honest conversation, especially about a misunderstanding, like in that moment. Now, don't think you want to do a deep dive in, in every crossed wire that might happen in, throughout the workday. 
But occasionally, you know, something re- that one really stuck with you, right? That really struck you. This was a decade ago. Yeah. You were puzzled by it. It stuck <laughs> with you. And, you know, so occasionally it really is worth saying, hold on, right? Can we do a quick time out here? Or maybe if we're too busy now, I'd love to talk about this later. I need to understand better. Here's how I was seeing it. Am I really missing a sort of area of expertise in this industry that I need to develop? Or might this possibly be an area of innovation that we could work on together? And so that's the substance. And then the the interpersonal substance is I felt bad and maybe even assumed that my ignorance was glaring in that moment when you said that, but I understand why you said it, right? So that there's a we can start to develop working relationships with people where we understand each other's needs better, and then we're better able to learn together. Yeah, that is good. And as I imagine, I'm sure there's all kinds of potential sensible explanations under the surface. Like, oh, I've been in working with this industry for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Sorry, size packs are just like second nature to me. Right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you might think that, whatever. So I could see how that unfolds. And and then over time, certainly that, that feels great in terms of relationships being strengthened by engaging in these exchanges. All right. Well, then could you tell us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. And that's, of course, Thomas Edison. And it's this notion that in new territory, which all of us are in more and more frequently nowadays, we reframe. We have to reframe how we're thinking about the things that go wrong so that we actually understand them as progress toward the things that are going to go right. So that's one in terms of the substance and just sort of feeling better about ourselves when things don't go the way we had hoped. The other one is a quote from Abraham Lincoln that I adore because it speaks to this interpersonal realm. And he says, I don't like that man very much. I must get to know him better. To me, that's a very profound statement. Because most of us, if I decide I don't like someone, I'm going to, okay, I don't like him. I'm going to go spend time with other people. It doesn't occur to me instantaneously to think, I don't like him. I guess I don't understand him well yet, right? If I understood where he's coming from and what he cares about and his hopes and dreams, I'd like him. Mm-hmm. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I'll have to say that a favorite study was the study that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, was the first real project I did as a graduate student, as a PhD student, where I was trying to show that better teams in the healthcare delivery setting had fewer errors. And the data, once I had it and analyzed it, seemed to suggest the opposite. In other words, the better teams, according to the team survey instrument, had higher not lower error rates. Like, what? What's going on? Well, that was the surprise, undesired result that led ultimately to you and I having this conversation today because I was able to figure out, not right away, but with a lot of extra work, that the reason for this result was that the better teams were more open, more honest, more willing to report error, And so it looked like they had worse error rates. But in fact, we don't know the denominator. We don't know what the real error rate was for any of those teams. But we did find out ultimately they had very different interpersonal climates, which I would then call psychological safety. Uh And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks they quote back to you often? 
A leader is a position. Leadership is an activity. Mm-hmm. Anyone can exercise leadership. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? AmyCEdmondson.com or Harvard Business School faculty page, hbs.edu. Go to Amy Edmondson there. All right. And do you have a final challenge for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Ask more questions. All right. Amy, this has been a treat. Thank you. And I wish you many fun adventures in, in sailing and more. Thank you. It's been a treat talking with you. I really loved what Amy had to say to remember that we're all fallible human beings in a complex, uncertain, interconnected world. Oh, just so soothing. <laughs> so we could chill out a little bit and loosen up a bit on our expectations of ourselves and others and be okay. It was like, yep, I made some mistakes. I screwed some things up and that had a negative consequence. Oopsie. And that's just what's going to happen these days. And so long as we're sincere and we're trying and we're looking to learn and be conscientious about what's up, it's okay. Honest mistakes happen. It doesn't mean I'm a loser or bad. It's all good. We are all fallible human beings in a complex and certain interconnected world. Great stuff from Amy. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP707. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.